Hey, Mac, when does deer season start? Well, if you want the best deer herd possible, Lanny, you need to start right now. Right now. That's, That's why right. we're starting our promotion. I mean, we've got a deer season starts now promotion on plantbiologic.com where you can pick up our game changer soybeans, our forage soybeans, and our spring protein peas. While you're there, you might as well go ahead and pick up some brassicas like our final forage and winter bowls. Yeah, stock up for the cool season planting right now. Listeners to the GK Podcast, if you use coupon code GKPOD, you can save an additional 10% off our entire selection of warm season, cool season, and clover food plot seed. Get started today and visit plantbiologic.com for an unforgettable fall. I am Jeff Foxworthy, and welcome to Gamekeeper Podcast. If you want to learn more about farming for wildlife and habitat management, then buddy, you are in the right place. Join the Gamekeeper crew direct from Mossy Oak Land Enhancement Studio as they discuss the latest wildlife and habitat management practices, news, and of course, hunting. There's no telling what you'll learn, but I'm going to tell you, I bet it's interesting. Enjoy. We're live in three, two, one. All right, everybody, here we are. It's the first part of the year. Happy New Year to you, Dudley. Happy New Year, Bob. Yeah, we're excited to get this one kicked off. We've got, uh, we're going to talk about something I think a lot of people will uh, be interested in, and then even more people will find interesting, and, and they will become interested in right. after we discuss it a yeah. little bit. So, uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about some uh, Native American uh, archaeological sites and artifacts and the legalities of some of that stuff, uh, what you can find, how to know what might, might a site might look like on your property. A lot of guys have, you know, on their hunting property, they may have some uh, old campsites or we'll discuss all that. Yeah, so. I, I think we've all stumbled across something, you know, in our time out in the field. And uh, I'm excited to learn more about all of it yeah sure thing so at the end of the table we we got i hadn't seen toxie in a couple of weeks uh there he is and uh toxie what's been going on christmas christmas has been going you know, on I've, yeah. I've been i've had a busy decorative decorative schedule this particular december yeah i've seen some cool photos you, you kind of went toxie crazy goes this year. all out decorating for christmas that's an understatement yeah. but i'm getting more and more grandkids so it gets more and more fun yeah, you do love it. I, I, you know, you see it, he'll pull up in the parking lot and he'll have lights hanging from his rearview mirror. Uh, yeah. The only yeah. person I've ever seen do that. Right. Yeah. So. And then we got Greg Tinsley with a great big smile over here, Greg. We're yeah, glad this is to so have fun. You. This is fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is well, great. Yeah, well, we we checked you out, sort of, from the, from downtown. <laughs> yes. We got to give you back here Wonderful. in an hour or so. Yeah, it's good, good. Well, I knew you had an interest in this subject, and I thought you could bring something to the table. Well, who doesn't? Uh, I've been trying to find a stone arrowhead for 63 years, and I haven't. So I'm here. Maybe I'll find one after this after this discussion. Yeah. You'll find something for sure. All right, guys. So let's talk about uh, what kind of moved down the, th- the blood on the biologic. What, what all, what, Dudley, what did you see this week? Well, uh, you know, my buddy B.C. Rogers— <clears throat> his son Ivan. <clears throat> I didn't send pictures in, by the way. So, ah, so you have a story? No, just okay. I have blood on a biologic. Oh, okay. My first time to really get sit in a deer stand. Killed a really big old six point, but great deer to kill. Big, big deer. Oh. Well, I have not so seen a picture. Yep, have not heard a word about this. I don't, I, you know, know, without a picture, I don't know that actually we can just take your word for this. <laughs> Don't Big worry. old six points. So. Yeah. Weighed about 215 pounds, probably mm. eight years old. Wow. Dang. That is an old mm. deer. 
Wow. Six-inch base. It's an old deer, but just a six-point. I think we've seen him before. Well, by the way, did your plots, did this cold weather? Gone. It, it smoked all of them. Have you ever seen anything no. like this? Well, it smoked. I, I just was telling Dudley, I probably planted 250, 300, like, pansies and stuff in the backyard, in the patio, and, and I'm, I'm a big gardener kind of guy, too. And when I got home for the holidays, we've been in Alabama, um, everything was gone. Every single thing, I mean, without, in fact, even my azaleas look burnt, like they might, I might lose some of them. I've never seen anything like it. Everything is completely dead. Only thing I will say in the last day or two, you can see little stuff looks like clovers and grasses coming back <clears throat> in those food plots, but it smoked everything it's everywhere. Devastating. Unbelievable. Yep. yep. Never seen anything like it before. Yeah. Yeah. What about the winter wheat crop guest? Oof. Doesn't look so great. I bet. Not mm. good. Mm. Dudley, so you were saying on the blood on the Yeah, bottom. so uh, one of my high school buddies, who he's actually in the outdoor industry, uh, him and his wife Kim have the Wren and Ivy, the really fancy leather goods and more. Uh, their son, Ivy, got his first deer. That's awesome. Yeah. Speaking of Ivy, well, congratulations. Oh, uh, yeah, but, yeah. But speaking of Ivy, Day Ivy, Ken yeah. Ivy's daughter killed a really nice buck. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think it, it's on the mossyoak.com page. She wrote a little story about it. It's called Tailgate Talk. So, yeah. uh, that, so there's the picture, huh? I said, well, there's a lot of blood in that mm. picture, Docs. Wow. You said yeah. butt was blood on the deer. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. a good that's, one. That's for sure. Hey, and I also want to, uh, Hunter Holly's son, Grayson. He did. What? Yep. Yeah. That's yep. awesome. Boy, he's a cute Who little old young guy. He is. He yeah. is a pistol. He yeah. really is. He is a chip off the old block, and he killed his first buck. That's awesome. Okay. Yep. Well, congrats, Taki. I didn't know you had. Uh, I just got started good. Yeah, well, that's good. That's an old deer. That's, that's yep. really cool. Does anybody else have anything? Greg, you got anything? Really don't. Uh, the ducks have been kind of sparse, so I we're, just, we're yep. just kind of hanging out. Now, I haven't properly introduced mm. our guest yet, but do you? is there anybody in your life that has just recently in the last week done, um, done something phenomenal like what Toxy thinks no, he has done? I did not say it was. <laughs> <laughs> usually oh, you by ask now, about blood <laughs> <laughs> usually by now caroline has gotten a large one but she's just gotten dough which she's just gotten the meat so far there was she's, nothing wrong with she that. got a new lens for her camera oh cool so she's been shooting with her camera that's awesome yeah i, I think i've seen some some duck shots on the social oh well media. they have had great they did have a great duck hunt last weekend oh wow with and a friend a relative from south carolina was with us and Caroline walked in and said, we waxed him. <laughs> Shot him in the face. Yeah, that's good. Fantastic. So uh, moving right along, Richie, do, do we have a – who is this episode brought to you by? Today's episode is brought to you by the Furminator, you know, a great oh, partner yeah. of our, ours. Uh, just love them. Talk about, you know, they've got all different land management uh, implements that all a gamekeeper needs. Yeah, I mean, speaking of food, we've been talking about food oh, plots last yeah. couple. They, they've got a great product. Oh, they do. Yeah, and they sure do. I would encourage everybody to, to you know, it's a new year. Uh, we, we, the, the guest we had on last week emphasized about doing things right. And, yeah. uh, and a fermenter can go a long way toward helping you do It's a actually food plot so right. versatile, and it's so, like, simple and effective. It, you know, the chances of you investing in one and it running really good for many years – you know, 10, 20 or longer is so high, so much higher than all the moving parts on some other things that plant similarly. So they are, it's a really 
really, really cool food plant implement. And quite honestly, other stuff you could plant too. Sure. They've got yeah. uh, cultipackers and they've got a little drill now. So check out Ferminator.com. Is there anything else, Rich, before we well, get on? Well, one thing I'd like to mention here. Last week, did you guys talk about Go Wild? Yeah, we did that new app, the new social media app, guys. Y'all, yeah, it, uh, Greg, you missed it, but uh, yeah, it's called Go Wild. It's a place that hunters can go and not be censored, so to speak. And so it's new, and we just we're trying to encourage people to check that out. It it's good, yeah. It's okay. wild but, too. Yeah, it's Go Wild. Yeah. So uh, thank you, Richie. So look, let's um, turn my attention. We've got a, a guest. We're really excited. You're highly recommended. Uh, we've got Miss Jessica Crawford. And as I understand it now, that you're a, you've been to school a long time to study archaeology, and you are, have a real passion for history. And whether it's so, today we're going to talk about Native American history, first American history. We've got a lot of questions to ask, but I, I think your interest, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself to get us started, please? Sure, sure. I, well, I grew up in Marks, Mississippi, which is just the northwest corner of Mississippi over in the Delta and was always interested in the past. I, all through high school, I said I wanted to major in historic preservation. You know, I wanted to be the one that scratched down to the original coat of paint in a historic home, but Eventually, I got interested in you know, what's outside of an old house, an old structure, and I went to Ole Miss, got a degree in English, and while I was working on my English degree, I spent a lot of time playing also. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, was, it was a while before I even got the English degree, but I got married and married a, a farmer from my hometown, and he dropped me off in a field one day. He was going to check up a levy or something, and I found you know what I called at the time an airhead, but it was actually a large spear point. And I'd never really thought much about Indians or Southeastern Indians. or it, it was all historic before then. And I got really interested. I couldn't believe I'd found this perfect point and that somebody made thousands of years ago. Well, first, I wanted to know how old it was. It's the first question most people want to know is how old this is. And so I started doing research and um, volunteered with the local archaeological society for a while and Went back to Ole Miss to get a degree and get my master's degree in anthropology with an emphasis in archaeology, which is is what you need to be an archaeologist. You know, so where I'd like to start this, it's, it's obviously you're very qualified for Dudley and I have a lot of questions, and mm-hmm. I, I know Greg does as well. And, and Toxie's actually, you know, a large landowner who's got, uh, you know, the, I mean, it's just in a in a part of the world where everybody's curious. You know, and and we want to protect things. So I want to start by talking about the legalities. Uh, if you've got a property somewhere, I mean, obviously, you know, as a gamekeeper, you're trying to keep poachers off the property. But what we've come to learn is there are guys that are they're not out there looking for your deer, or your turkey. They're out there looking for what artifacts may be there. And that's a much bigger deal than what most people realize. Much bigger. And so could you talk a little bit about that? And then could you please talk about the legalities of surface hunting or, or that, or if you have a mound, uh, what can and can't you do or sh- sh- ethically, what should and sh- should you not do? Well, you know, if the first thing is to have whatever you're doing, have landowner permission um, and you cannot surface collect i mean anybody who does anything outside even just working in a garden is odds are you might find an artifact a a prehistoric artifact or historic you know you know an early 19th century or 18th century artifact but um 
you can do you can surface collect on with landowner permission all you want you should never dig uh, that ruins the con what we call the context of the artifact if you take an artifact out of where it was the exact spot where it was dropped and we don't know where it was found i can't tell you how many collections i've looked at where there was this great point or a stone bead or something really interesting a spectacular example of an artifact where did it come from and that if we don't know that doesn't tell us much um, so it's important to keep up with where you found everything if you're surface collecting and you should never dig and it is completely illegal to surface collect of any sort on state or federal land you know even you know when you're out on one of the reservoirs a lot of people a lot of times people find things there but that's a federal that's federal land and you're looking at federal laws that protect that so you you cannot even surface collect there and which is is difficult for a lot of people I know they say well if I don't pick it up somebody else will but still it's you know it's it's federal property and those are stiff charges um, you know we every state has a state archaeologist and almost every state has local um, archaeological societies these are people who work with professionals that will teach you how to keep up with what you find you can get a site number from your state archaeologist these are not made public they're put on a large state map and if you find an artifact you can contact the state archaeologist they'll mark it on a map and give you a site number and that map is only available if say someone wants these are important because someone might want to put a road through your property years from now you know we looked at this happened in around tunica in tunica county when the casinos all of a sudden went in and nobody ever thought there would be casinos there and all of a sudden they're wanting to put casinos in and there are mound sites all over the place and so these will be recorded so that when someone gets ready to do something that will disturb this site it's in the database and it has to be dealt with and of course before these kinds of projects people go out you know people are required companies are required to hire archaeologists to go out and test and make sure they're not going to disturb something that belongs to the public and so when you find something you should put you should record your site with the state archaeologist they're not going to tell anybody else and that way you can put your site number on that artifact and you know that people are living there I mean we've got like as many as uh, about 12,000 years of prehistory in Mississippi probably older I'm thinking about the oldest radiocarbon dated site in Mississippi is about 12,000 years old and so that's and that's um, near Amory it's called the Hester site and you know we, that's a lot of years of history and there weren't people in every part of the country at that time there's different time periods but you can put a date on the artifact that you find and know people were there at that time period so it's it's writing our history so one of the things and I'll let these guys start asking questions but when I when I kind of sit back and think about it I mean there were Native Americans from Florida up into Canada from uh, from the the Atlantic coast to the west coast I mean anybody listening to this in the United States had there, there were Native Americans in that area it some in some way shape form or fashion and and we've probably found an arrowhead in a field when we're working a food plot and there and these guys 
I think of them as the first gamekeepers because when you hear some of the stories, and I and to, and I want to ask you about this, but we hear about you know them burning and doing so they they were managing the landscape for for wildlife, and I, I, that's just fascinating to me. And I know some of that is so hard for us to understand, and a lot of it is you know what you guys have learned, but it, you know when you look at a map, the United States, so many rivers towns are indian names and they may have been kind of modified into a more english version but the indians had a huge impact oh, no country. doubt they no should doubt. have yeah they, rightfully so yeah, yeah that's a good point that's <clears throat> a good point yeah when you're when your livelihood depends on what's out there you're in tune with what happens out there and and you know in all the years of prehistory that we have you know they were there to see the the mistake, the repercussions of bad land management, or you know, bad, you know, the, how how what how human actions affect the environment. They they learned, and they're much more in tune with with nature and rivers and the land than we are. They knew the sky better than we do. I mean, it's it was a completely different. It was a somewhat different environment. It's most of the. I mean, it was a lot like it is now, other than the Pleistocene when there were mammoths and mastodons and things like that. But and river courses have changed. The land's been modified by by the environment. But you know, they their livelihoods depended on being able to count on certain animals in certain places at certain times. And the same thing with with plants. You know, they would go a, to a certain area when certain nuts would be falling, or you know, they could gather. They followed the ducks they were in the delta you know for to hunt ducks so they moved around and they were also you know they also stayed in one place often and they would exchange you know we find marine shell all the way up in the midwest and we've a friend of mine from mississippi state recently sourced native copper from the great lakes region to a site on the gulf coast you know just like down by gulf gulfport it's amazing how that works you know i mean do you have any idea, like, something like that, does that change hands many times, or is was there just like a, a people that would, were just willing to walk that far? I think, uh, it, I, you know, I think it was both. I think small amounts changed hands, and I also think it was loaded into canoes and sent down the river. We find Burlington Church, and a, massive amounts of it at a site right outside of Clarksdale, and that came from, I think that came right down the Mississippi River, and it's it's big pieces. So somebody didn't just throw it on their back and start walking, but there was it's what we call trade networks, and they they, they got around. We tend to we try to we sort of primitize them in our minds, but these people don't stay in one place ever. You know? No, they're curious, yeah, just like we are. They've got what we want. Let's give them some of what we have, and 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 vice versa. So I mean, I. There's just so many questions, but like, what what were some of the most prized possessions of of the natives? Uh, well, you know, it's again, it, it depends on on time period. Yeah. Uh, exotic things we call exotic materials that you know, in one area it might be some shell, marine shell that was engraved. They would sometimes make these shell gorgets. They would c- cut circles out of a big shell and engrave it. And we've got, one of my favorites is the woodpecker gorget. It's a piece of shell that's, you know, I don't know, about three or four, four inches or so across. And it's got an ivory-billed ivory billed woodpecker motif engraved on it. And that's it's amazing. just, 
and you see see that ivory build woodpecker in a lot of of art of in pottery and it's just you know that's what the, the ivory build is one of my favorites it's just yeah it's, all we have left is yeah. the pileated yeah. yeah which is pretty impressive too but which just makes me think god the ivory build must have been amazing and a, a friend of mine who's chickasaw was at at a museum, I think he was at the Peabody recently, and they opened the drawer of, of the the few ivory build, you know, the mounted specimens that they still have. And he was like, "These these are our brothers." That's crazy. We were talking about taxidermy last week, so yeah, interesting stuff. Yeah, Greg, have you got a question? The site uh, in Amory, what was recovered from that one? The twelve thousand year old site. Uh, lots of stone tools, but you know, in, especially in the southeast, we don't have very good preservation of things like wood or material, things like that. Every now and then, in a cave, you'll find something that old, a cave in Alabama or or Arkansas. But it's mostly stone tools, projectile points, yes, scrapers and mm-hmm. and points. Uh, was there any pottery point. in that? No, pottery was not invented until much later. So they were using, you know, likely you know, skins. And then at some point, they were using stone bowls, uh, soapstone bowls. Uh, the sources were, there were some sources in Georgia and Alabama. The same site that had the uh, copper from the Great Lakes region also had some stone bowls. When did the technology for clay bowls come in? Pottery uh, dates to, it's about 5,000 years oh. old, yeah. Recently? Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty recently. Yeah. And, and it actually, it... Um, the earliest pottery we know of in the southeast was found in an area called uh, around Augusta, Georgia. There's a site there, an island called Stallings Island, and it it has some of the oldest pottery in the southeast on it. It's it was in my textbooks, you know, in grad school as as the the oldest pottery is from that area, and that's that island is owned now by the organization I work for. Archaeological Conservancy. That's good news. Terrific. Yeah, yeah, and it, it was heavily looted, and when I say looted, that I mean people snuck over there and dug in the site, and it when it was donated to us, it looked like a moonscape. These massive holes mm. had been dug in it, and for for things that were, and this is another uh, prized artifact, that one thing these people were looking for are engraved bone pins made out of, I think they're usually made out of turkey bone, they're called awls, A-W-L-S, and they're, you know, they're, they can be used for sewing as cloak pins and things like that, but they're really intricately engraved, and they're preserved there, and that's what one of the things these people were digging for are these, these pins, bone pins. So can, you, can we kind of pause right there and then think back kind of broadly across the landscape? How important was white-tailed deer? to the, the the Native Americans back in their time? Oh, strangely, I mean, it's the main source of, of protein, at least certainly in the southeast. I mean, there's, you have, you have bison, but, but here, it, that was the, the main source of protein. You know, the, of course, they hunted turkey. We find remains there of what they ate, food remains. They ate everything. I mean, from down to lizards, snakes, even great blue herons, which I don't know where you get meat off a great blue heron, <laughs> but it's it's prim- primarily you know you have white-tailed deer, and we can look at the bones and or, or you know the zoarchs, people who are, are specialized in um, archaeology and identifying 
uh, animal bones can look and tell, you know, how old the deer was and, you know, what season, what time of year usually. And, and a lot of times we'll see, you know, at mound sites, we'll see, when we say we see evidence of feasting or something like that, we can tell that they were eating the best parts, prime cuts of deer at this mound site. You don't find any other, you know, you don't find the, the legs or any, you find they were eating the tenderloin and the back strap, all, you know, all the good stuff for the, their fancy parties, I guess, you know, the, the feasting at mound sites. But that, that was extremely important, and bear, too. But, but deer, I think, and of course, you know, the antlers were tools. That's how they made their stone tools. That's how you pressure flake and, and knock a flake off a, a stone, usually, is, is with deer antler. Yeah, I've kind of, there's some Facebook groups where people flint nap. Yeah. And uh, it's it's really impressive uh, how how good people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there are some great. Now we have modern nappers. technology to make, you know, better tools and things like that. But it it's fascinating. And uh, I've enjoyed trying to learn all the lingo. And I don't need another hobby. But so most of these that we refer to them as airheads that we find surface find are actually spear points can you kind of explain the atlatl and the bow and arrow sure. what, what we might be looking at yeah it's you know arrowhead is kind of a, a catch-all term for the the point on the end of of a weapon and but also you know usually the points that are about an inch long if they're much longer than an inch maybe two inches they're probably spear points because if you put and, and y'all know this if you put a uh, a big point on the end of an arrow when you shoot it odds are it's just it's too heavy it's going to go go down and we only have evidence of the bow and arrow didn't make it really to the southeast until about ad 700 so it's not you know until then there's a longer history of of people hunting with the atlatl which is a spear that is thrown with a spear thrower and those are usually what the larger points were on, and of course there are a lot of we often call them PPKs, which means projectile point knife. You know, a lot of these were just tools, knives that sometimes you can see a little flake out of the side, and a friend of mine calls them oyster openers. But um, you know, those I think those were were just tools, multi-purpose tools, because if you had bone, stone, and wood, and and shell. Sometimes shell was used as a tool, but but you know, stone. If you want to really cut something, a stone is going to be the best best option. It's amazing how sharp those things can be when somebody knows how to pressure flake them. But, Tashi, I'm looking at you. Uh, where you kind of grew up hunting down around Choctaw Bluff, there had to be uh, a, a no, lot. I, there, reportedly, one of the great mysterious sites they've always looked for was down there, and I think it still never has been verified uh, Mulvilla. oh Mulvilla, yeah and so i don't yeah. to this day i don't think it's been positively identified where now the hearsay was right below where we all right actually right there where the mossy oak tree was but to my knowledge and you would have an update you know I, they yeah. never quite figured out where this you know incredible site was you could speak to it there there's a team with uh university of west alabama and Ashley Dumas is working with um, Jim Knight, who's retired from the University of Alabama. They're they're close to finding it. I've helped them. I just went and volunteered for a week or so this past summer in Marengo County, right on on land, and they're finding Spanish metal, what we know is Spanish metal, 
and I think they are in. They're certainly close. They don't. They don't think that they have found the actual village yeah, yet, right. but they're. I think they're close, and it's really some of the most exciting research going on, at least in the southeast now, is to is to watch this group. She's giving a talk in Mobile about it. I think next week. But you can you can go. It's really they're doing great work, and it's. it's so it's what exciting. I heard about it. Correct me if I'm wrong. Now that that this massive site was a city that would have been compared to like Atlanta, back back in the day. That it was just a major. Had a lot of people living there. There were a lot of people living there. It, it was Chief Tuscaloosa's village, where the name you know the city of Tuscaloosa. That was his village, and. Um, he had a battle with DeSoto there, and and it was burned. And the numbers, there are different numbers for how many Indians were killed there. But you know, the the site will be a large burned Indian town. I wonder why it's so hard to find. Seems like somebody would have that would have passed down through the years. You you would think, and that's that's a good question because a, a place that a burned town that big, you know, they were living in houses that we can still see evidence of them, especially when those houses burned. They were made of this mud. Most of them were made of this mud called daub. They were wattle and daub structures. And so you can walk out in a field and see daub, see the rem- if they burned, if these houses burned prehistorically. So this would be a massive burned village. And you know, some people used to think the, um, the town of Cahaba, on, uh, right outside of Selma, old Cahaba, that's on top of a big... Indian village site, but the dates aren't right. But a lot of people used to think that that was Mabila, but that's been, I think, pretty much checked off the list. And there are several things that have to, several things that need to be found to prove. And there'll always be people who who doubt, but yeah. but so, so it, it's amazing that it hasn't been found yet. As a young guy down there, did y'all see and find mm-hmm. artifacts? Or not much. Was it even on your radar? Really? Not really. To be honest with you, because. You know, we just never ran into them, and it was all timbered. And so it's pretty rare in a hit, just almost completely. In fact, um, I, you know, I'm pretty sure there and a few other places probably in the 60s, that was the first place there were ever, ever a food plot Yeah, down there. They called them, uh, just called them green patches, but, uh, or food, they, I think they called them food plots. But, you know, they wouldn't even allow people hunting around it. But no, nobody there that hunted ever, like, planted them. It was just somebody worked for the family. And so there was never, my point was, there's was never any bare dirt anywhere to come across yeah. stuff. So yeah. we never did. Yeah. yeah I'm sure it was abundance of it somewhere down there, but I sure. just never did. That's the difference in, in finding, you know, if you look at our site database for the whole state, the cl- most sites that are recorded are in the Delta where mm-hmm. land is farmed. And we just don't have, <laughs> nobody's out doing surveys or looking at gra- the ground when you've got a lot of timber. So that's and that's one reason why you know we there's a we have a good good idea of where the the village of uh, the DeSoto when DeSoto crossed the river into Arkansas and he he met um, the natives there we think we know where that was and that's e- it was easier to find that place because it's in the Arkansas Delta and it's been farmed right. so it's just you don't have pe- you have to walk and dig shovel tests if you're in an area that's got a lot of timber or pasture and so that's what that's what they're doing in this in Marengo County is they're walking plowed fields and that's what I when I helped I went and we just did transects walking across fields but they had to be plowed when we you know when you do one that's got 
cows in it or it's in the timber, it's a lot harder yeah. to find evidence. So it's it's probably hidden in a place that has just not been heavily farmed. Yeah, that's the only reason. It, I mean, it would have as much as it's been sought after, and actually some other stuff too. It would just about have to be in a remote. You know, some large landowner, heavily timbered, hadn't been messed with, you know, or it would have been discovered by yeah. now. Yeah. And yeah. that's the first, that's the key to finding these these sites. Is some of the first things they did when they started looking was just have a public meeting. You know, bring what you found. Have you found anything? Could you bring it here and let us look at it? And, you know, it's just, it's getting help from the public and private landowners. And there are some landowners that won't let this group survey their yeah. Their pasture, you know, because they hear these, you know, archaeologists will take your land. Take it away from right, you. exactly. I have actually heard people talking about I, not cooperating because, and that was a long time ago, and I don't think they were doing anything wrong. They were just fearful. You know, sure. they're just like, there's a fear, oh, something, they find something, government's going to take my land away from me. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's rightfully so that they would fear that I, i'm sure that's a false assumption for it sure. is it is you know because what listening to her that would mean it would be protected is what it would mean yeah. and and yeah. down the road it can protect your land you know i've got i've had people call me and say you know they want to put this road through my land and and i don't want them to and i've got sites out here can you help me stop it and i said well are they recorded sites but no the archaeologists wanted to come out here years ago, but I wasn't going to let them because that's the government. And I thought, well, if you would let them record your sites, <laughs> it would it would be on the map mm-hmm. now, and, and I could help you a little bit more. But very few things, archaeology is so low on the priority list when it comes to money and business and things like that. Few th- archaeology rarely stops anything or takes anything away from someone. Now, there are laws that have to be followed, mm-hmm. when, and it changes when you're dealing with human remains. I mean, but yes. but even then, you you know, you call the state, and if you do the right thing, you may just have to slow down and let it be professionally dealt with, and then you can keep Continue. going. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah I, and I have no idea, but uh, I'd always been told if you came across bones that you had to just leave it alone completely and no more picking up anything or touching it or whatever uh that that was just immediately make it you know whatever illegal to human remains are protected by law but it's still your land you know um it's and and you know so could a landowner that all of a sudden discovered a bone in some plowed up ground he's been picking up you know, spear points or arrowheads for years, does he have to completely stay out of that then, or can he still pick up a point, or is it just, just don't touch the bones? We can't disturb a burial. Right. And Or take anything from the burial. And if it looks like, you know, there's you're, it's there's a whole cemetery. Um, yeah, yes. So I, would, I had to say this, I don't talk about our place as much, but there is a place very distinctly <clears throat> in any amount it goes off into some woods, and sadly, you know, of course, where it's in a field, it's before we ever got the land, it was farmed a good bit. So that, you know, and you could usually find something out there. But just only in the woods where some bigger timber, it kind of bleeds off into there. There was very distinctly about six foot long, three foot wide rectangles sunken in maybe six inches to another foot, just, just like all in the woods. And it just made me cringe because I know exactly what that was. On top of that, you could just see... The surface of the ground everywhere is like brim beds where it's sunken in little circular places. 
and it had just been completely robbed, including the graves. So, it so, so it'd been sad. devastated. Oh, People had absolutely. stolen stuff yeah, out of it. Absolutely, no other <clears throat> possible explanation for that. You know. Yeah, and people have—they know people who do that sort of thing know where these these sites are, or they they know how to find out. So a, a guy, um, you can look at a map, I suppose, and they 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 wanted high ground along creeks or mm-hmm. or rivers or, or what. I'm not trying. I, I, what I'd really I, let me rephrase the question. So, if you were if you're a landowner and you've got a big creek, is there a way that you can say, you know what, I probably need to. I bet this area right here, where this creek runs into this bigger creek on the higher side of this, might be a quote unquote site. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, is that I mean, how you go about looking for something? If well, if you know, if an archaeologist is going to do a survey of a whole area, and and they do that sometimes, that yeah, that's those are the most likely places. You know, a good place to live then is the same place that we live now. You know, a high spot near the river, especially his early history. You know, in the eighteen hundreds when where towns were built were often on Indian Indian settlements. I know the town that I live in. So yeah, it's, it's usually high high spots, sandy sandy areas. On, on a body of water or at the confluence of two bodies of water. And, and that's, I mean, that's, that's just common sense. So water was extremely important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But so going back to what Toxie said, if you're a landowner and you've, somebody is digging or what are your, what, what can you do? Who, who can you call that will come and help you? You can call the um, your state archaeologist. In, in this state, it's the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and sometimes they they'll often refer you to game. We've got several game wardens who are trained to recognize things like that, looting, and you know there's there's some telltale signs. A lot of times, if you find, um, of course, if you find <clears throat> digging tools hidden somewhere, or some have told me recently because I have to look when I visit our sites, the sites that. The archaeological conservancy owns i look for things like you know in the trash are there battery packages battery wrappers and a lot of them do this at night so they'll be changing out batteries and things like that so um i mean and just yeah piles of piles of dirt and they'll a lot of times they set up black visqueen tents and and dig they used to do that at a site near clarksdale a lot and not not backfill, and then you know the farmer would break an axle with, on his, when his tractor drove through it afterward in this this site, and that it still happens a lot. But but yeah, if, if you see piles of dirt and and strength, just a lot of trash and and things like that, you can call archives and history, and they'll usually contact a game warden. But there's there's a an, an escalated effort to deal with that on private property because it is. It, on private and public property, it is a lot worse than than a lot of people realize. You can, and sometimes it's it's legal. You know, you can look on. There are people on that have YouTube channels, and they'll take a camera out. And sometimes I think they've. I feel like they've probably got permission from the landowner to just dig and dig and dig, and they pull out these beautiful points. But these beautiful points are like you know, say one or two feet beneath the surface, and they're they're in context and gosh there's so many of those that I've, we would know so much more about those points and about that site if it had been left there and I understand that it's fun to find something but I loved it I mean that's that's what got me into this and for a long time even after I became an archaeologist I thought wow if I 
it would be really hard to give something up if I found something really cool somewhere. I mean, the, but it's, you know, now I, I do. I, I'd rather have the knowledge than the artifact. And that's the way ar- archaeologists feel. They get, they'll get excited about somebody's private collection. And they may ask to, to borrow it long enough to photograph it and sketch it. But no archaeologist I know wants to keep that stuff. We don't have a place to put it. I mean, nobody wants to take it away. We, we've learned so much from people being generous with what they found. We, I mean, I couldn't have written my master's thesis if not for artifact collectors. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking like uh, I was trying to look up my family tree about a month ago on the computer. And what would it be like if a lot of that was blank spaces because yeah. those records were messed with? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different perspective. But it's the it's the same human people. So know. Jessica, isn't there a like a an underworld yeah. that's out there digging in these oh, places like yeah. what we've described? Mm-hmm. But they're selling these artifacts. Yeah, and, they, there's big money in it, um, and and it's 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 underworld, but it's also pretty out out in the open. I mean, if and if you find you know some some people will pay a lot of money for a certain type of point. But, you know, I, I've seen so many fakes, and it's, it is it is a sketchy world. I mean, it, you know, I hate to – I don't want to make any of them people who buy and sell. But, you know, it's you just don't know the real history. And there, there are also flint nappers who are really good, and they fooled archaeologists. And just because something has a, a paper with it that says it's legit – you know, I've, I, I know an, a lithics expert, another archaeologist – who recognized points that were stolen from Ole Miss in a collector's collection wow. when he was looking? I mean, and it, this awesome. was a, awesome. a, an, a, a really a specific point that, and Ole Miss used to not have great security in the 1970s, and 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 Sam was like, man, that was Ole Miss's point in that collection. I know it was, and we do, especially the um, the paleo points, some of the earliest. Points. We have an, a database where we keep it, where archaeologists keep up with these points, and they're photographed and sketched. And you can recognize a point by the flaking. It's almost like a fingerprint. Mm-hmm. So the story from way back in the day. This is Bob Dixon that started this. He was calling on an account and was talking about this guy had a bunch of bunch of artifacts, and you know, it was just one of those career you know love to collect. You know, just there were a lot of people obsessed with it. But he said, you know, something about from West Point. He said. Oh wow! One of the richest sites in the country is down there. Oh my gosh, the black market people just. And he said, "You got to be kidding me!" Oh yeah, and he was describing it to him. Well, guess what? It's right by your hunting club, yeah. and you know where it is. Yeah. So yeah. they were. He said they will park, and I actually had a place I leased right there. They will park on your railroad tracks, walk about a mile. How far down to the creek? Mile? Yeah, probably. It, it mile and a quarter. Yeah. Cross that creek on the railroad track, then walk through the mud another mm, over a half a mile to get to this site. And they work all night, and they come back out, and they'll be at, they'll leave right before it gets daylight. They do it at night all the time. And I was thinking, you know, I've seen trucks parked there, I never could explain or whatever. Maybe it's telling the truth of what I. But I never thought a lot more about it because I just don't get absorbed in that kind of stuff. Well, not long after that, the Federals busted a bunch of people down there on that exact mount. Yeah. And I mean, they, they caught them red handed and so forth. And of course the guy farmed that down there at the time, this part, this big, huge mound was not 
farm. So it had grown up some trees and stuff. But evidently, there was a treasure trove there people were going for. Here's the thing that will get you. So they made a big deal out of it. It was in the papers. It was everywhere. These guys busted the Federals, caught them, you know, fines, jail, all this stuff. Two days later, someone got in it again. That's how bold they were. Well, have you ever heard me tell the story? And they, I just want to say, you got to walk like two miles to get to this. That's how bad they wanted to get in there. Yeah. So I don't know, Tyson, if I've ever told you my story that, that where I encountered some of them. Well, well, where you hunt, I would be surprised if you didn't, at least a long time ago. I haven't heard a word in yeah, 25 so years. But. This is 25 years ago. Yeah. One afternoon, I snuck off of work, forgive me, it, it, to it, I remember it like it was to, Lightning yesterday. Lightning strike me if I criticize <laughs> that one. But, so I, I go to, there's a deer I was trying to kill, and, and I snuck over there about 3.30. Was that the fake deer? And, and No, it was okay, not. Okay, go so, ahead. So when I go to cross, the, there's these railroad tracks when I go to cross them, I look down and I can see four or five guys that are walking down the tracks toward me, and they are filthy. I put my binoculars up and I look because they're 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 on us at this point. And I look at them, and I'm standing there with an orange hat on and binoculars and looking at them, and they are they are filthy. And I start seeing they just they're in a line, but then one drops off and then the other one drops off this side, and they kind of come back up. And so they're about 300 yards away, and I'm thinking, I don't want to go kill this deer, but I need to wait and tell them they don't uh, find out what's going on. So I stood there, and they walked all the way up there to me, and they went into this, man, we are so glad to see you. We are lost. We have been, we parked our truck and had a friend drop us off at the Tibby Creek, and we walked the creek looking for old bottles, and we've been walking all day long, and we don't know where we are. And a I didn't know what was going on. And I was like, well, let me just, you know, if you'll walk this way, you'll get to to town. And I had no idea. And that, but that's what those guys, they were coming out from digging in that. And And they were, they were peeling off the tracks to, to drop their stash off. That's what I'm told. And then they were probably going to come back and get it later. Yeah. Definitely not old bottles. (laughs) No. And I can remember thinking, what a bunch of, who wants to go walk that far looking for old bottles? No, they'd be, totally they'd be going naive. to old well sites and stuff for that, probably. But I did encounter them. And, I, you know, sometimes I think about that and I wonder, you know, what all might have been going through their mind when they walked up on me. Because some of these guys, I'm told, are some pretty unsavory characters. We had uh, DNR was working on an investigation that was related to the island, that Stallings Island in, in Augusta. And it was a massive operation with DNR arresting a lot of people including someone who was supposed to be looking after our site unfortunately but he told me he said you know I used to think nothing of driving by myself to a site that the conservancy owns hop out and go in the woods and check on this mound that we own or something like that and and he said you know you just do not go alone anymore because these some of these people he talked about walking up on this one guy he said I fought with him. He said, I thought I was going to have to shoot him. We rolled around and rolled around. And, and if, if his backup hadn't shown up, and this guy had dug all in, a, I think, one of the national forests. And he walked up on him, and he said, you know, you just, a lot of it are, you know, a lot of people are, are they're also cooking meth out there. Or a lot of, you know, you hear, I've been told that a lot of people on meth will just to get money and just because they need something to do, will just go and hunt artifacts. And if they find something, they know the collectors that will pay them big money for, for a whole Motley Point or a whole Dalton or Clovis. I've got a Motley. 
Do you? Yeah. Well, those are great points. Found it at you, my, found it at my farm. It? <laughs> yes, I know exactly where. Good. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, he said, do not go by yourself anymore because some of them really, you know, you don't know what shape their mind is in or they do not want to witness. And it's just... You know, it's it's dangerous now, and so and I really thought I've thought about that. I don't I don't do that anymore. Used to think nothing of it. I want to give a shout out to our game wardens. I mean, I don't know them everywhere. I know Mississippi and Alabama, the most versatile law enforcement people on the planet. They are. I mean, I just saw where our local buddy here. This is so good, and a team of other ones. You know, seven hour, seven and a half hours through like whatever wilderness areas uh, to track down a like a federal fugitive or whatever. Oh, wow. I didn't get all the details, but it was like seven and a half hours, and they're on drug bus, and they're on – so I know that's a little off the point. But that's who that's who that, we would yeah. call around here. They're mm-hmm. the ones that asked – in fact, they would ask me, you know, if you had – can you know, I want to go in there and look and see if there's been any activity on this or that. They, they really are the most versatile – all law enforcement. Yeah. And I mean, I just hope. They are. I know people, you know, someone likes shoot over limited doves and they hate game wardens or whatever. And I'm not picking on anybody particularly, but thank your lucky stars for them is all I'm saying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah Regardless of whether you might have a guy locally you don't like or can't get along with or whatever, it is the greatest thing that ever happened to North American wildlife is our law enforcement. Yeah. yeah. Get game wardens involved in the – the people who are arrested in this area on the, on that mound. And mm-hmm. I met one of them's wife the other day, and I was like, tell him thank you. Because, the, you know, a lot of them are like, I used to just write tickets for ducks, and, and now I'm looking for, for pointy rock, people stealing mm-hmm. pointy mm-hmm. rocks. But they've, 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 looked, they've learned the laws, and they know what to look for. And, you know, they're educating the archaeologists on what, what a looted site looks like. And, you know, they, they will go after them. Well, there, there's better, and with better technology, is better, easier to, I mean, even satellite surveillance might show up yeah. something for them. Because, you know, they can access that kind of stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, the even the, the the cameras we use for deer hunting can help you catch people. You know? Yeah. Yeah, we've got, we've got them, got them on several sites. I was getting alerts on my way here from a mound site in Louisiana that we own that has a camera. Wow. On it. So, Jessica, you can say we, we're... When we think about somebody looting something like that, it kind of is, we find it offensive ourselves. I mean, and when we have no ownership in that, uh, Toxic does when some property he owns, but how, how do the Native American people feel about that? Is there, are there things being done? Are they having meetings and organizing themselves or? or They're, they're more active than ever. And, you know, in, in Mississippi, in the Southeast, you know, we did, we had the Trail of Tears. So a lot of them were removed, but there are still some here. And then those who were removed, the tribes that were removed to Oklahoma are extremely involved. Now, more than ever, a lot of them have their own archaeologists. They're constantly involved and, and they work with the state uh, to, to take care of mound sites to, you know, and also returning artifacts that have been taken from graves. There's repatriation, NAGPRA is a law that that requires uh, human remains and associated objects to be returned to tribes that have a connection to them. So they, although every day we don't see them, they're they're extremely active and have, you know, really strong feelings too. Um, And it is offensive to them and they do, it may be a 4,000 year old site 
it's not something we consider like the, the a Choctaw tribe or Chickasaw tribe, but you know they're certainly their ancestors, and they feel extremely protective. And it is it's still sacred. To yeah, them. I mean, these it's, sites it's, are. I mean, just trying to put stuff in perspective. I've I've got a, a baby chair from the 1800s that's in my family, and uh, mm-hmm. that's a prized possession. And yeah. I mean, it's no different. It's more. It's, it's a bigger it, well, deal. Yeah. Well. Well. It's this. It, you know. It's it's the same. It's it's their history too, and and especially with these that were removed. Um, we have a partnership. We've had a partnership with the Chickasaw Nation for a long time, and. They gave the Archaeological Conservancy a grant to purchase a Chickasaw uh, village, a 1700s Chickasaw village right outside of Tupelo. And the the Chickasaw governor, Governor Anatubby, visited his first visit there. You know, just he, he looked at someone who came with him and said, I feel it. And I've been there before when they visited and said, so this is where they lived. And this was not that, you know, just a few hundred years ago. This is... You know, the, the 18, early 1840s, late 1830s, that this was their homeland. And so to come back and see where their houses were and to know that their graves are often disturbed, either intentionally or unintentionally, is, is painful. And, but, and, you know, but they do come back, and especially the Chickasaw in, 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 Tup- in the Tupelo area and this part of Mississippi, they're extremely active and and there's a, there's a lot, you know, they're going to build a, a heritage center in Tupelo, a Chickasaw Heritage Center, which is, you know, it's the only case I know of of a tribe returning to a homeland from which they were expelled and working with the people who ended up with their homeland to create a heritage center. Well, I, I drove by that site uh, on the, I think it's off the trace. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah on the way to a soccer game a few weeks ago. And it's a, it's a really cool site. There's a lot of natives that, you know, it's prairie-esque. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going to be a great educational. Even the tool. white guy yeah. in me could, could feel it. You <laughs> yeah. Know. You really, yeah. You, you really so, can. So Miss Jessica, as um, you're, you're, let's talk about how, Someone, I'll use Toxie, for example. Careful. A, a, a <laughs> landowner that might have a mound or two on his property. It, it, you were telling us that there are ways that you can uh, deed it or uh, where the conservancy kind of takes care of those. It, it, can you explain how that works? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times you know, landowners, they, well, they're, they're taking care of the land at the present, you know. And, and I've, I've talked to many who said, look, my family's all, my kids are going to get this. They're going to love it just like I did. And, but, you know, we don't know what the future holds. And, you know, in some cases, so what the Archaeological Conservancy does, we're set up like the Nature Conservancy, except we preserve archaeological sites. And, and uh, people join the Archaeological Conservancy for $30 a year. And what we do is we talk to landowners and try to convince them to either sell or donate their archaeological sites to us. And what we do, we use these sites, we just bank titles away for educational and research purposes in the future. You know, not every mound site is going to be a state park or a national park. And it doesn't even have to be a mound site. If it has archaeological research potential, we have a plantation, we have Civil War forts, we have colonial forts and Indian villages and mound sites. And, um, you know, those all those sites do have information. They'll they have the ability to write a page of our history. They just might not be part of a, a park. And so we hold title to them and we la- allow 
archaeologists to do research on them. They do have to submit a research design. No one is allowed to completely excavate a site. Um, we do, we're starting to work with tribes on how we manage them, but we try to, we try to manage the sites in a way that protects the archaeology, and it's, you know, it's just the same, basically, as when the owner turned it over to us. We've got mounds in the middle of fields, and we'll let a farmer continue to farm a site if he's not deep plowing, you know, if he, if he no-tills, and we just leave the mound in trees. We have other sites, you know, nobody watches land better than somebody that's got the hunting lease on it. So a lot of our sites are leased. Sometimes the landowner will say, well, you know, I've grown up hunting here. I want to continue to hunt. So we'll say, okay, your family has the hunting lease for the next 75 years. And I might go visit it maybe once or twice a year. And if the people hunting see anything, you know, fishy, they let me know. But um, if they donate it, that the appraised value of that land go, it counts as a donation to charity. And sometimes we just sell it or we do a bargain sale. To charity, which means we buy it for less than appraised value, and the difference between the purchase price and the appraised value is a donation to charity. So, if a guy didn't want to actually sell you the property, can you guys still step in and help, like learn about the site? Uh, and, and and is there information that you got that would be valuable to you guys to know what's here? And but but you know, and not necessarily change hands. Well, we don't we don't do the research ourselves. We've you know, if I, if I do any excavations, I'm just usually helping somebody that's digging on one of our sites. But I can, you know, I'm an advocate for archaeology, so I can help someone, you know, contact the state archaeologist, see if it's been researched. A lot of people think nobody's ever been out here to see my mound. And then we find out later that, yeah, in the 20s, somebody was there. Yeah. And so, you, you know, we can make sure it's been recorded. It has a site number. If they want it on the National Register, we can help with that. And that can get some tax benefits, I think. But, you know, a lot of people think if something is on the National Register, it won't be destroyed. And that's that's not true. I've seen lots of National Register mound sites be completely flattened. Because it's, mm. you know, our thing is, well, this country is built on ownership, private property. I mean, it's yours. It's your land. And, you know, if you, nobody can really tell you what to do with it unless you're disturbing burials. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Greg, what's uh what what you got on your mind? Look like you got a question. Uh the Clovis point for rank beginners like me, the oldest point I guess known, is that still true? Is it 6,000 years? There's very uh, few of them. Well, it's it's much older than is it? than than 6,000. And there's this theory that the Clovis people, the people that made that point, you know, about gosh, I supposedly some I think the earliest the Clovis first theory is that people were here in in the United States about fourteen thousand years ago, but um, and and they were using Clovis points or landslip points, you know, long, fulsome if, with, that have a flute. They're long and narrow and have a flute or a sort of a um, I'm trying, best way to describe it is sort of an sort of an indention on both sides so that it could attach to a certain type of of spear. And but you know, a lot of people think that's that's not the earliest that there were people here before then. And that's, you know, you will hear archaeologists argue about that and where DeSoto first saw the Mississippi River. You can see archaeologists get really ugly with each other on Clovis first and where DeSoto discovered the Mississippi or saw the Mississippi River. But, um, but yeah, the Clovis point is generally, you know, the earliest 
that that we have, especially in, in, in Mississippi. I mean, with that there was a Clovis here. Oh yeah, Clovises have been found. How, how many Clovises are there? I thought there were very very few. Not many. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't know. You could talk. Our paleo experts uh-huh. are at Mississippi State. Gotcha. And Mississippi State has great yeah. archaeologists and those. But great those are, every great everything over there. <laughs> yeah, um, Derek Anderson and, and uh, uh, Shane Miller—they're at Mississippi State. They—they they have the Paleo Indian Projectile Point Database, and they keep up with these points. So Derek could tell you, you know, how many Clovises have been found in Mississippi. But it's something to get excited about. One thing that got me—what got me into archaeology really was a—it's not a Clovis point; it's a Coldwater point. But it's—it's it's a little bit younger. But it's a Paleo point. And we live on the Tallahatchie River, which um, when I found that, I was getting my English degree, and I took it to one of my teachers at Ole Miss, and he said, "When where do you live? And I said, well, I live on the Tallahatchie River. And he said, we don't find a lot of paleo points over there because that land surface is under a lot of dirt, the surface that was exposed like 9,000, 10,000 years ago. That's how old my point was. So he said, you know, that needs that site needs to be recorded. And so he called the state archaeologist who was based in Clarksdale at that time and said, look, this girl has a cold water. She lives over in southern Quitman County. You need to go record that site. And that site had not been recorded. So he came over and he looked at all my points and he gave me a site number. And I, you know, for a year, I'd go right back to that site. And every point I found there, I put that same site number on it. And I'd noticed that some sites kind of back on the the bios, not on, not on the Tallahatchie River, didn't have pottery. But the ones, the sites that were on the Tallahatchie River, the sandy, um, our cotton fields, the good sandy dirt, I'd find pottery and stone. And I thought, this is different stuff. And yet, the sites were separated by thousands of years. But it was a paleo point, you know, that really got the attention of the archaeologists because it is so long ago that, and that's all we've got left. I mean, that one site over near Amory, that paleo site, the Hester site, it's, it was excavated, I think, during the 70s, and we got the earliest radiocarbon date from that site. Mississippi State has gone back more recently and reopened those units. But that's still like the, the main paleo-Indian site that's been excavated in Mississippi. So we st- there's still a lot we don't know about. So those paleo sites are great. It's so fascinating to me. Uh, You know, we have different model cars and things, and these points, you know, they're all over the U.S. or wherever in the world. And uh, a motley is a motley. A Dalton is a Dalton. A turkey tail is a turkey. I mean, what, did they have a book to go by or something? I mean, (laughs) how, how did they communicate, you know, 400 miles away and they make identical pine tree points or well a lot of it it's also dictated by the game you're hunting too and and while they may have different names a lot of times those names are just different places like you know it's a general shape like they they change through time they get the get the um the ears and the the, the base changes the base will straighten and then you'll have an an expanded base and then the arrow, po- arrow points, the Mississippian triangular, are just little triangles. And they get smaller all over the country a lot of times. And people get hung up on these names. And, 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 and it's great to be able to rattle off the name of, of every point. 
but it's you have to really know how it was used. Well, tell us a little bit about picture. tell us a little bit about this motley because when he mentioned it, you both lit up like <laughs> it, it was a Burger it's, King Whopper. You know, it, <laughs> it looks like a big morel mushroom to me. You know, the the cross section. Uh, it's got kind of big ears. Uh, the notches are in a particular place and. Yeah, yeah, they have a, a big spear point. Yes, uh-huh. yes, yes, and it's those are generally they're related to what we call the poverty point culture. That's in Louisiana. A lot of it yeah, is the, in Louisiana. The right? type site is in Louisiana, in Epps, Louisiana, and it's a magnificent site. It's a World Heritage really? site. Yeah, if if you're ever in the area, it's definitely worth a, vi- a visit. It's it's just fantastic. So these mound builders, these this Mississippian culture. It, 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 quite amazing isn't it i mean I, you know I, not being from uh the state uh i didn't i didn't really know about the mound building and so forth and and saw the i think it's called the far mounds mm-hmm. between here yeah and saw it in good light it's on the natchez trace mm-hmm. yeah. and was just blown away by how gorgeous it was have you guys seen that oh yeah unbelievable <clears throat> well yeah and it's not just mississippian i mean mississippian is a, is a culture that, that sprang up along the mississippi river valley and this this was a, a later culture you know about ad one about a thousand years old but people were building mounds as, as long as like six thousand years ago seven thousand years ago and most of those mounds that have been dated were in Louisiana, northeast Louisiana. We have some in, we have one in Mississippi. I'm sure we have more. We just haven't found them. We haven't dated them. They were used for different purposes. But the, yeah, the oldest mounds, I think in North America, are, are, are in Washita Parish, Louisiana, and that area. And wow. um, so, and, you know, we don't really know what those were used for. And we're still, I mean, we're still. There's so much we don't know, but mound building is, it's gone on, and not just in the southeast. You know, they're in Ohio, they're they're in the east. California has mounds. Well, those folks were kind of going out about the time the Spaniards got here. Is that? Well, they were still they were still building mounds. The Natchez Indians were still using mounds in the 1600s when the French got gotcha. there. They were some of the last, though. They, some of those the very were some, last yeah. to do that. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's, yeah it's interesting to think about why they did it. You know, are you trying to get out of the water? Or, I mean, a lot of people just have a, a digging instinct. We like to build things that go upwards. I, I mean, what do you... Well, we build, that's what we had to build. That's what people had to build with. You know, there's not a lot of stone. Um, in fact, we have a license plate for the mound trail that says, or, or I think they're on billboards, it says we build our monuments with dirt. And it's a way of, in a lot of time, in a lot of cases, that's where somebody important lived. You know, if you think about it, you know, we have our um, preachers and church are kind of elevated. We have people, you put people on a stage when they're doing something important, to, when we watch a play or something like that. So it's a way of elevating somebody important above everyone else. And that's what a lot of these mounds were for. And I think, you know, some of the earlier ones that, we haven't found the remains of structures on these later ones. We have the Mississippian period ones. We we find burned houses on them or burned structures all the time. They there'd be something a big structure there. We see the post holes. It would burn either intentionally or accidentally. I think a lot of times those were intentionally burned because 
either the person had died or, you know, it's a cleansing ceremony and things like Militarily, that. Militarily, the high ground, too, might yeah. be in a, in a Stone Age society. Might yeah. Be. A lot of people think, you know, a lot of people think it is to get out of floods, but these sites, even in, in flood-prone areas, they're always on the high natural levees. I mean, they weren't, they, they didn't build where they were going to flood. They, and, you know, the Mississippi River flooded differently then. You know, the, the, we didn't have these levees trying to keep it all, all in one, one course. It was allowed to, to flood slowly. The water rose slowly in back swamps. So they were building their villages on these high natural levees that, you know, you couldn't get a whole village on one mound anyway. I right, mean, yeah. So it's more like a, you, think, you can think of it as a county seat. Like that's where the courthouse was. And then you have all these little farmsteads. And the important people, you go there periodically and, and do things, and the important people are there. You take the good parts of the deer there for an annual feast, things like that. It might have been a little cooler up there in the summer. <laughs> so, too. Yeah, catch the breeze. Yeah. <laughs> so I've heard the term, um, there was one around here, and it was a used to be a big, flat, wide farm area, and then there was this, you can even see it on the, now, and I'm sure it's marked, Um but someone had referred, they thought it was a ceremonial site. What would that mean if it was? I think they're thinking about these large platform mounds where. Uh, this is like 15 to 20 acres. Oh, I don't, I don't know of one quite that big. A lot of times they're, um, you know, there might be a ridge or, or a, an erosional remnant that where there, there was a ridge and then a creek changed course a long time ago and it kind of cut it off. I see that in this part of the state a lot. We looked at one not too long ago and it's you've just left with this big hunk of land that may have artifacts on it. And mm-hmm. a lot of times if people see artifacts somewhere and it's high, they think, well, this, this was a mound. But a lot of times it was just, you know, a campsite that was used repeatedly which makes it no less important you know when you just look at a mound site you're getting one snapshot of assist it's like looking at castles you know what, what did the average guy live live like so those you know little campsites are important too but the, um, the ceremonial mounds a lot of people like to joke that when archaeologists don't know what something was used for they'll say it's ceremonial <laughs> like I, I don't know what that is it was ceremonial mm-hmm. and so that's but when we say that about mounds you know we, we just mean an important leader probably somebody important lived there and something significant to the people in that neighborhood was was happening there you know which what I've found uh, it actually knowing you for a long time and knowing what kind of dirt you like a lot of the dirt that you like and that you have hunted all your life is in major indian old stomping grounds i guess it's just because it's here i mean we are if i'm not mistaken we're we're the chickasaw and choctaw you know prop uh whatever the line was and it moved i'm sure and they fought battles back and forth but along the lines territorial lines i think there would probably be more mounds artifacts activities than out in the middle of something probably wouldn't it well well you know remember these lines were drawn by the white surveyors right and you know and of course generally the the tribes in later time periods they they did sort of you know keep separate or when especially hunting you know you kind of keep an eye on your hunting grounds but but you know prehistorically before choctaw and what we consider choctaw and chickasaw and other Natchez tribes, you know, they were, we're all human, you know, and, and so they were, there were Indians here well, I mean, thousands of years ago. We just don't consider them 
um, Choctaw or Chickasaw. It's just like if you think about us, you know, over thousands of years, people move around. They change. I don't worship exactly the same as my ancestors 3,000 years ago. Some things are the same. I don't dress the same. Some of the foods are the same. Some of them aren't. But, you know, I, when I did my DNA, and I've got a little bit of everything. And so people, you know, we speak differently, but we do have hang on to, tradi- to traditions. And that's, that's how people were here as well. What's fascinating to me is to walk in the woods with somebody that, like her that, that understands or knows what they're looking at. And oftentimes you'll, you'll walk and they'll go, well, that, that, that's a mound right there. And to the untrained eye, it does not look like a mound. It just, it, it's just a small little hill. rise or something. But once you kind of stand back and they explain, well, that's, I think I've heard the word midden, mm-hmm. uh, that, that in, you know, and you, real, and you realize, well, that, that is what that is. But it's not just this big noticeable mound like we see yeah. pictures of. Well, it may be just a site, and a site has a midden also. You know, when we say site, that is a place where, where people were and they, drop things, you can find the, their, the remains of them living there, whether it's their tools or their food remains, things like that. That may just be a site. Now, a mound would be something where people got together and intentionally went and got basket loads of dirt and piled it up. And a lot of times you need to core something to see that, put in a soil core. Um, it's, you know, it takes time to put a trench in it, but you would look for basket loading, signs of basket loading. Yeah, I've seen photos of that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just different colors yeah. all mixed together, the roughly the size of a basket load. Yeah, or, but, you know, a lot of these are just, are just sites where people lived for a long period of time. And again, you know, those, those are important too. You know, like the, uh, you know, the Clovis, when you find a Clovis point in Mississippi, it's, it's not going to be. We don't, we don't think Clovis people were building mounds. It's what the cover of one of those magazines. Some have suggested, and they may have been, but we're, we're just not sure yet. But, you know, generally, it's, it, those were people camping. They were there for a little while. But we don't have many of those sites, and we don't know much about what they did when they stayed in certain parts of the state. So that's, you know, those, it's important to know where those Clovis points are found. So I guess one other question I thought about, you know, there's I've run across them hunting and been on people's places that had them and so forth. And then, you know, there seems like there's just nothing. Maybe I'm not good at finding stuff. But then a few places, there was just stuff everywhere and like pieces of flint all over the place. And, you know, I was just wondering, and one of my friends is, is a you know, just a amateur, but he is obsessed with it and studied and read for, you know, years and years and years. And he was saying, well, some were literally like factory locations. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that could be so rich in the stuff you can find as far as the points because they actually made them there. There'll be a lot of them that didn't quite make it and they'll just toss them and start over. But some places are so rich with stuff and some have almost nothing. Yeah, and there are quarry sites too, you know, where they're, they're at the source of the stone and they're, they're making points or they're, you know, getting pieces and making preforms, which is a point a few steps before it's actually you know, got the base finished and the, and the blade finished. But, but yeah, there are a lot of, there's some archaic, and I say archaic, I mean, these are the ones that are uh, thousands of years old and mobile hunter-gathering groups um, who, who, you know, followed animals and, you know, didn't, didn't stay, stay in one place for a real long time. Um, that's what you have a lot of around here in this area, and they tend to have the largest, some of the largest, most sought after by collectors, points and um like when you mentioned tibby creek that 
that kind of rent. There are a lot of sites around there. So Rich, yeah. Speaking some, of, some well-known sites. Speaking of interesting sites, the uh, Paige Ladson site in Florida, are you familiar with that? I am familiar with that. One of the interesting things about that, it's uh, a scuba diver went in there in the early 70s, I guess when scuba was just kind of taken off. And it's uh, he was on the Asilla River, which is uh, a very obscure river in uh, in kind of that Big Bend area. And he started diving in that river in those sinks and came up with a mastodon tusk. It might have been a mammoth tusk that had been worked on with stone tools. And they carbon dated that to 14,000 yeah. years, some yes. crazy number. How how accurate is the carbon dating? Do you it's, feel good about it? Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. I mean, it does. Sometimes it depends on what the, the material that you're dating, mm-hmm. but but it's gotten really good. It's, it's, Has it? Yeah. And, you know, every now and then you'll get a date that you think something's wrong but, and you're tempted to throw it out, but you're not, you can't throw it out. <laughs> you, just, you just need a lot of really good, reliable dates. And it has gotten accurate. And these Florida sites that are under, they're submerged. I mean, you know, sea level is rising. Those were, that was exposed land you know, 14,000 years ago, but it's underwater now. With a mastodon living on it. Right, yeah. And and the, some of those sites, there's just this submerged ar- archaeology is some of the most important and interesting archaeology. Um, and the, some people from, a guy from Mississippi State was one of the editors of, of a recent book about some of the best and best documented paleo-Indian sites, sites that are that old. And there's a whole section on, you know, submerged sites because there's a lot of important information that's underwater now that's interesting um i want to shift it a little bit uh we're all hunters here um uh, i've always wanted to know the answer to this do you think that the natives uh, were like trophy hunters or did you know did they uh oftentimes try to find the the deer with the biggest antlers or the oldest deer or is there any evidence to support any of that well i mean we have we do have stories from that have been passed down you know that we hear from 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 modern tribes but but yeah again you know that of course they were hunting to feed the family a lot more than than we are now so they would know when to you know when they needed to get deer for food but also you know we see the big Big animals represented in in the art on the pottery. There's descriptions of, you know, a big a big bison skull on one chief's on the front of his house, or a big beer, deer head. There are, I know of um, some places where a house is, or a structure has been excavated, and in one of the post holes they find a deer skull. You know, which is that that's something really important, a big deer skull, and you know that's you know I'm sure that that was somehow to get the the I guess the properties of the powers of the bear had something to do with what was going on in that that structure and that's the that's the thing that that to me is most interesting is the the reverence and the knowledge of the power of all all the animals uh, you know the there were animals amphibians things that could move on in this world on land and in water which they considered the underworld. So, you know, you see frog effigy pots a lot. Um, I've gotten, Carolina's, I've gotten, int- Carolina's gotten me interested in swamp rabbits. Okay. Something that I didn't know was even around. <laughs> I think we've been pretty hard on swamp rabbits, but we see rabbit effigies. And I always thought, well, these must be cottontail 
rabbits. And then Caroline was helping some of biologists do some work on swamp rabbits at the wildlife refuge near us. And, and I, she said, Google a video of a swamp rabbit. And I did, and this thing was flying across the land, jumps in the water, swims, and then jumps out. And I was like, that's another animal that is too different. That's not a, they're not doing cottontail rabbits on these pots. They're doing the swamp rabbit because it can go from, from different worlds. And, and it was, I was just fascinated. Now I'm all into swamp rabbit conservation. <laughs> but then I saw Jimmy Carter, the video of, <laughs> about Jimmy Carter supposedly was attacked by a swamp rabbit when he was fishing. <laughs> and like his it's secret an amazing service. Animal. It, it really it's is. It's an amazing animal. And speaking of amazing animals, you know, there's a whole megafauna thing going on in North America. And they say, uh, I've heard people say that's why, you know, people didn't come here. Uh, because of the short-faced bear and the big cheetah and all that stuff. Oh. What, what's your theory on that? Oh, no, that? people would go after those. They, you know, yeah, that no, they were here at the same time. And, you know, it, it took a lot of work to and, and mastodons and, and yeah. mammoths. Of course, they people, I think people like to think that that was all they ate. They did a lot of gathering and stuff. But, but yeah, they've... Like that didn't keep them from coming here. They well, were... apparently, apparently Daniel Boone walked up on a salt lick in Kentucky, and there were the bones of giant beavers and oh yeah, we... uh, things that had been gone for a long time. Yeah, there were giant beavers and ground sloths and yeah. just all kinds of stuff. And some yeah. of that's going a little bit farther back. You know, they weren't run- dinosaurs and stuff when people were running around here. When do you when do you think people came here in to North America? Is it fourteen thousand uh, years ago? Is it twenty five thousand? Is that the great mystery? Well, some people, I'm not quite on board with the 25,000 yet, but I do think they were probably here before 14,000, some, I think. Did they come from the north or the south? Oh, I think that's kind of an argument that's going the on argue. right and now, did they too. Come yeah. in, oh, I think they came in different ways, some from the coast and then some from the north. But if, if I were really going to do, I'd do some, I'd talk to some other people, some, <laughs> some experts before I really argued. But I tend to think that there were people here before, before Clovis. But, you know, we just don't know. We got to do more. We that's got, why we, gotta, we have to preserve we keep these places. We got to keep digging. That's why we have to keep, that's why we have to keep, take good care of these sites so oh, that we can. Boy. No doubt. So what are we not asking you? I, I'm sure when you were driving over here with Caroline, you thought if these knuckleheads are, have got any kind of good ideas, they'll ask me this. Is there, is there yeah. something? These are, well, these have all been great, great questions. And there, you know, we have, archaeologists have the same questions. You know, what, what were they eating? A little bit of everything. And how did they, it's, these are things that we are trying to figure out too. How did they change their environment? How did they react to it? And also, you know, how, how did modern Native Americans or, or Indians feel about it? And they, and they are all different. You know, you can't just kind of pigeonhole them all into, to like, try Indians today because they they have they they have different languages. They have you know their similarities, but they're they're also all different. And and I may ask one, what what do you think we should do with this site? And another, then another one will say something completely different. But they are very involved, and they're they're certain, you know they're they're doing well. There there are a lot of them around. There they I still learn from them. I used to think that I was silly. I was young and dumb as an archaeologist, and I thought you know we knew everything through science. And that's that's a first year archaeologist thing. Most archaeologists learn pretty quick that you don't learn everything in college, and and it's by talking, and I've learned a lot from them, but growing up in Mississippi, I never knew, I never met a southeastern Indian 
descendant of a southeastern Indian until I was in college. And I, and, and I said to my, my professor, I said, who's that Latina that you just walked out of here with? And he looked at me and said, that's a Chickasaw. <laughs> you know, and I was an arch. Yeah, and 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 that's you know, I I told I I became friends with that. <laughs> that we're good friends now, and we just thought that was, we she thought it was really funny. I said, you know, what an idiot. That I was there learning to be an archaeologist, and I'd never met a southeastern Indian. And and she, I was pregnant with Caroline at the time, and she said, and I thought to myself, God, there's one of those poor pregnant trailer trash Mississippi <laughs> Mississippi <laughs> girls. <laughs> so she had me pay. I said, Well, you were wrong about me too. <laughs> That's a great story. No. <laughs> we laugh about it all the time. So there were so many tribes. I'm I'm, I'm just kind of in my do, mind trying yeah, to. Do they call it tribes from? Well, you know, before you had hit on that earlier, yeah, yeah, Europeans. When Europeans came over, that's when they started referring to these people, the people who were here, as tribes. And by then, the the settlement and the population had had changed a lot. We didn't have there weren't many people living at these big mound sites in the delta um, because of Europeans and and other things too. You know, they were fighting among themselves. There were diseases that they dealt with before Europeans got here, but, you know, Europeans certainly did not do them any favors, especially as far as disease is concerned. But there are a lot of people were were kind of breaking up, fragmenting, and sort of, at least in Mississippi, sort of seeking refuge in the northern, northeastern part of the state, sort of in the hills and the bluffs and around Tupelo, um, just on the edge of the delta is where you find um, some historic sites. The French established Fort St. Pierre just south of Vicksburg in I think 1719 and that was one of the first Europeans and then they, they were down on the coast a little bit before then and at Mobile, Old Mobile in New Orleans and that was the first European contact and they start they gave them these names and a lot of times it was when they asked the Indians they met who are you you know they would screw up the answer they were given but you know, before then, we think of Amoris cultures, um, Mississippian culture, and um, you know, woodland. We call have a woodland period, which is before Mississippian, and then archaic, or the thousands of years ago, and then we have Paleo, which is even older. Yeah, which is which is the oldest. So it's 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 cultures, and then then tribes after European contact, after DeSoto came through, and that's just the way we look at it. Mod- tribes now they often have a completely different worldview. Sure. There was, there was a lapse <coughs> between Navarre and Devaca and DeSoto mm-hmm. uh, It came through in the early 1500s. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's been, and in Mississippi, you know, there's you have DeSoto coming through, and then, yeah. you know, nothing going on, at least from as far as Europeans. A little bit of trade goods would come in from, you know, from, from Florida. There was stuff going on in Florida in between then, but we don't see many, when I say trade goods, I mean metal, glass beads, metal, things like that, that Europeans had and Indians here didn't have. The horse, the Choctaw horses, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. I think there's a couple of Choctaw stables in Mississippi from the Spanish horses, which were smaller. And a Chickasaw, one right here, right outside of West Point that I keep meaning to go and, and see that guy and see his Chickasaw horses. Yeah. That and horsepower was a great technology. Yeah, yeah. and you know, I can't imagine what the the tribes thought when they saw when Desoto came over here with those. They thought horses they were gods. And 
<laughs> and they found out quick they yeah. were not good. But, you know, and they're, that's what they're finding. And the, the group looking at these Mobila-related sites, they're finding, like, they found, like, nine Spanish horseshoes really? summer before last, which is just... Wow. When I, I was at a conference and I, I saw um, Jim Knight there, who's been looking for this place for his entire career, among other things. I mean, he's he's just, you know, he's done a lot. And when they said we've had nine Spanish horseshoes, I just like, ah, tear, I had tears going. It's just, wow. and they're doing it around Starkville too, you know. Yeah, kind of near my house. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if that location is disclosed, but. It's, uh-huh. it's, well, they, you know, they talk about this, these Stark Farms complex, these, these sites, they're, they're close to finding where DeSoto was in this area too. And it's. That's, um, Rufus Ward, his whole life. Oh yeah. 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 Rufus. Yeah, he's, he's such a great guy. He's Rufus. great friends of all, but he's, he's been looking for where he crossed Tom Bigby his whole life. And he is obsessed with. He's yeah, and I'm so sure you, knowledgeable. Yeah, he really is. Yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. love to get the two of y'all together oh, on the yeah. podcast sometime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, he should be here. He's, yeah, but we would never, and I wouldn't want to say a word. If she was here <laughs> yeah. with Rufus and both of them, I'd just yeah, yeah. shut up. And <laughs> well, Rufus is my go-to for this for this part of the state. He's just, yeah, he's been wonderful. And, and everybody that is, I think we're going to, I think we're planning some sort of a gathering for with Rufus. Rufus could be on a Dosecki's commercial because he is one of the most interesting. <laughs> yeah. He really is one no, of the most no interesting doubt. people you'll ever meet. Yes, and he's an example. You've got to find the locals who know the history, who know the landowners. I mean, we couldn't do archaeology. We can do research or preservation without locals, landowners, and knowledgeable people who, who know the history. Yeah, I think our first one of our first interactions was you calling down here looking for somebody to yeah. push hog a site. Lion's Bluff. Before you had some people coming in town, and I, we called a local bush hog person. Yeah, that's 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 the first thing I do for our sites is is you know find the the good local people who can help me out and and could not accomplish anything without the people that care about these places and know. So, Miss Jessica, Rob Burgundy has got a question for you there. <laughs> <laughs> I do. You had talked about the significance of getting permission from the landowner before doing any sort of surface digging or looking. Um, I'm from LaGrange, Tennessee, and that's a known Civil War area. And in the late 80s and early 90s, we had a real big problem with looting. People coming at night. And even when I was a kid, um, we would have people show up with allegedly paperwork from oh i'm with the university of so and so and i'm doing this research project and i'm doing this um and we would reluctantly let them look because chances are really good that all of the really good things have kind of been found we still find bullets and those sorts of things every now and then but um what advice would you give to a landowner someone who's in a a position to give permission to sort of vet these sorts of things where if somebody wants to come look and wants to come try to find something or says that they're from a university, what, what would you do? Well, you know, it's funny. I've, I've run into a lot of people who've said so-and-so came here years ago and they were from LSU and they tore the whole place up and, and I don't want let any more archeologists come out here. You know, that apparently that happened a lot. Oh, and by that way, that, that person who said they were, were from so-and-so, they weren't. They said, well, oh, yeah, we'll let you see whatever we find. And we said, okay. And they scarpered. 
So anyway, that's yeah. It. Keep going. That's I can't. It's hard for me to believe anybody would have the nerve to do that. But apparently they have. You can always call your state historic preservation office. I mean, every state has a state archaeologist or a state historic preservation officer, and that's their job is is to help the public with things like this. And they can, you know, usually in a couple of phone calls they can verify yeah, whether I or would, not. I would say a never say anything but no. Always, yeah. and, unless it gets verified. Yeah. yeah, sure. I mean, don't even try. And think to, about liability yeah. too. You know, that's yeah. like as landowners. That's because we're you know my we're landowners, and you know you you have to think about liability issues as well. So ask them yeah. about um, that. Speaking of the liability side, not from just like a personal injury side, but if you give someone permission to to be on your property and look for these things, and they disturb a site. They find a mound or they find something. Is that, does any of that come back on you if you've given them permission to? Well, it's, to, you know, it's, it's your land. And if they do find a mound, it's, that's between, I mean, it's, there's no law that says they have to do anything if you give them permission. Okay. But ethically, you know, that those things should belong to you unless you tell them they can have them. and. Sure. And unless you're disturbing human, unless they're disturbing human remains, and yeah. and you know, with yeah. a mound, if you're dealing with a mound, you know, there's there is a good chance there could be human remains in there. So it's not a good idea to allow them to dig. But do remember, you know, if you're giving somebody permission to dig on your land and they're not a professional, they're not keeping up, they're not taking notes, they're not saying how deep something was found, or you know, you don't just find graves, you find trash pits, you find fire hearths, mm. you find things like that, and all the information with the artifacts is being destroyed. And even they may tear, tear up information and find no artifacts, But because archaeologists, we're not just looking for whole points. You know, it's, it's features. Everything's important. Yeah, we, can, we know what, we can see evidence of a structure in the ground. I mean, and it's important to know if during this time period they were doing roundhouses or square houses or what size they were. So, you know, that's somebody looking for an artifact could tear up things that we can get information, things we could get a radiocarbon date from. Right. Mm. There's a lot of very knowledgeable people out there that artifact hunt, but their intentions no, Surface are, collect. But their their intentions aren't yeah. always the same. So no. Yeah. If you've got a buddy that <clears throat> claims, you know, knows what a Folsom point and all that is, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to recommend the the best way to go mm -hmm. yeah. yeah and a lot of them are super knowledge i mean i know people who have spent their lives surface collecting and you know there's a couple that i'll go to if i'm not sure about a point type and i have to give it a point name and i'll i'll call one of these artifact collectors who just you know surface collected that's a lot easier than digging you know when i I'll, when i first got interested before i was educated i went straight to the mound that was on our farm and stuck a shovel in it mm. And it was hard as a rock. It was August. And I probably got the shovel in twice and was like, forget this. I'm going back to walk in the cotton field. And thank goodness. Thank goodness. But, you know, and but that was out of ignorance. And that's why we need to educate the public more. And, so, you know, nobody's touched that mound since yeah. then. But it's, you know, it's, it's natural to want to learn more. And it's fun to find these things. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who aren't professional who who have studied it and, and know their stuff. Well, look here. We, we've been going a while. We've been asking her a bunch of questions. Right? Miss Jessica, why don't you 
get you a sip of coffee. And why don't we, <laughs> Dudley, why don't you ask her some rapid-fire questions? Oh, okay. We've got this thing, but you, you may have heard about it, where we mm-hmm. ask you some real quick questions. Dudley does, and it's brought to you by our friends at Springfield Armory. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dudley does a good job with this, so you better. Ha- you might want to ask Caroline uh, her opinion on some yeah, of this. Yeah, she may need to back you well, up Well, how fast bit. is the answer <laughs> Well, so you can say neither or both if you want, uh, but it's just fun. (laughs) Yeah. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Cheese grits or regular grits? Regular grits. Sweet or unsweet? Sweet. Dirt or soil? Oh, depends on who I'm with. (laughs) Good answer. Coyote or coyote? Coyote. Possum or opossum? Possum. Hunting bucks or ducks? Bucks. Country music or the Delta Blues? The Delta Blues. Paw uh, Paw or Persimmon? Persimmon. Indiana Jones or Laura Croft Trumbrider? <laughs> Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider. Tomb Raider. Nice, Dudley. So Bobby nice. put right. that one on him. <laughs> right. You've been had, Bobby. Probably Tomb Raider. And then uh, I misread that. Lastly, hottie toddy or hail state? I'm I'm hail state now, actually. (laughs) All right. A conversion. Good call. A conversion. I'm a convert, (laughs) too. (laughs) It happens. Now we know a little bit more about it. Well, I mean, you know, as you get older, enlightenment occurs with some people. (laughs) Right. You've got a great laugh. You you really do. (laughs) I enjoyed listening to you, you. I think you enjoyed Dudley asking you those questions. So now we're going to turn it over to Rob Burgundy, who has got – we're going to ask you a trivia question. And if you get it right, one of our listeners who has left us a review will win a fabulous prize. Okay. Now this is pressure. (laughs) And this one you can ask – you and can I'm phone gonna, a friend on this one. Yeah. And I, I'm going to go ahead and say, I think you're going to know this answer, but I think there are a bunch of people in our audience that will be like, oh, wow, I didn't know that. So, Okay. Okay, so this one is for Josh3415, and he, he left us a review on the, podca- on the podcast. So he said, since listening to the first episode and listening to the, la- the latest, the knowledge that y'all put out is fantastic. A lot of these episodes I've gone back and listened to multiple times, and our hunting lease looks amazing this year. So, yeah, good for him. Awesome. Great review. Thanks for leaving a review. Yeah, so the prize that you're playing for is a thin green line. It's a it's a memoir of an undercover undercover game warden, and we uh, we stole this one off uh, the bookshelves of uh, Bobby's office. Wait, uh, wait, yeah. wait, 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 what? Well, you need to lock your door every now and then. <laughs> oh. All right, so here's your question. In the 1980s, a museum at a Native American site was the victim of what's been called the heist of the South in which 264 artifacts were stolen, and only three of which have been recovered. The artifacts were valued at $1 million at the time. That's 2.7 today. What was the name of this site? Moundville. Oh, wow. Right out of the gate. Nailed it. Yeah. No hesitation. Which is in Alabama. Yep. Wasn't that, that's a fascinating story about how somebody stole all that stuff. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's it's terrible. It's Oof. It's heartbreaking. It's amazing though that that three have been recovered. That you know that's pretty recent that that those three were recovered. And I I, I think they'll find the rest. I don't think. Well, I I don't know. I've I've heard different things, but it, yeah, it's it's tragic, and it had to have been some sort of not an, an insight. Somebody had to have known what they were 
doing to know where all that. I mean, that's a lot of pods. That's that's yes. a lot of. Yeah, <laughs> it sure yeah. is. When I found out about that story, it was just it's just amazing. That's that. Uh, have any of y'all been to Moundville? I'm, I'm sure you have. It, I took a field trip there as a kid. Isn't it incredible yeah. how big those mounds actually are? I, I, I didn't know anything now. about this story. Well, I've never been to Moundville. Chief Tuscaloosa, I'm assuming. No, he he wasn't. That, he wasn't? No, he he was at wherever wherever Mavila is. Um, oh, okay. And and Moundville predates that just a little bit. Of course, it was occupied over a long period of time. Mm. But it's an amazing site, and it's 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 definitely worth a visit. You can the Amtrak train kind of if you ride Amtrak, it goes right through the site too, and it's always cool. You can look out the window and see wow. the mound site. But it's got a, a nice museum, and it's on the on a. A bend in the river. It's just, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. My buddy John Lieb worked there for a while. Uncle John. Uncle John. Everybody loves Uncle John. Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, with our, our our reviewer won a prize. He, he can just get in touch with us at gamekeepers at mossyoak.com. We'll get that. I guess since it's my book, we'll get it. We'll, get it. <laughs> well, you raid my closet it, it, all I, the time. I do. So I'm getting I my payback. Believe, I can't believe you even raised an eyebrow, Bobby. Yeah, yeah. I know. He kind of got mad. Didn't he? <laughs> wow. Turnabout's fair play. Wow. wow. It's rough around here, Dustin. <laughs> See that. Yeah. So, look, here, here's your chance. It concluded, what, what is there anything that, that we needed to ask you that we didn't? Anything about the Conservancy you want to make sure you get a chance uh, to tell? This publication, I'm going to butt in, is amazing. I've been flipping through it, and uh, I see Mr. no reason why somebody wouldn't want this on their coffee table right yeah. next to DU and gamekeepers and everything else. Dudley, what's fascinating. The, what's the publication there? Uh, American Archaeology. It's our our quarterly magazine that the Archaeological Conservancy publishes, and people who join the Conservancy for thirty dollars a year get a copy of this. And this is how we, you know, keep people aware of of what research is being done on our sites. It covers research done in the Americas. You won't see not that it's not interesting, but you won't see King Tut in their Egyptian or other archaeology in the Americas. And we also offer um, educational tours. Those are advertised in the back. And and it's just a way for us to keep our members up to date on the research that's going on on the sites that they help preserve and on other sites in the Americas as well. And it it is. It's a great publication. I think that our last one, we have an an article about the mound that was donated to us recently. Isn't it incredible to think, though, um, like, Taxi, I'm thinking about some of your places, and Jessica, I'm sure you've got others, but if you're walking along on a spring turkey hunt, and it's rained and washed away, and and all of a sudden, there's uh, a head, an air ahead, or a spear, and, you pick, and you're the... The, the, you think about the yeah. last person that touched that. I mean, mm-hmm. it could have been thousands of years ago. Yeah, and it's a reminder that we're all just passing through. That's a great point. I mean, it's it just we're it's it's all temporary. Yep. It's, it's just it's very we're it's a very short amount of time we spend here. It's a great exercise in broadening yourself just a little and waking up <laughs> from this sleep we're in. Like it's all about me, and you know, and the world revolves around what's going on right now, which is you know when you think about. It, just how long have we been a country? Not even 300 years? Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about, you know, and then the earth's been here, what, billions of years. Yeah. We're just, we're only here for a second. The one observation I had that I thought was really cool, listen today, and this includes especially Dudley too, along with you, is that there's such a commonality in the origins of the emotion behind this with what we do as gamekeepers, and that's that connection with the earth. 
It's so common, and especially the American Indians, what I know and have learned, I hadn't studied as much as Greg and Dudley have, but is that they revered and honored that uh, to the point of religion. And so uh, there's just something so cool that, that attracts us to what we do in caring for the earth as a gamekeeper, and it's such such a common emotion with exactly what we're talking about with our, you know, the people that had this before us. And so, I mean, yeah, I just... Well said. Yeah, yeah. just... just it's a it to point out don't in your walking life don't miss that just you know chasing the big deer and hunting and fishing and all this stuff too don't lose track of that you know spiritual part of what we get to do in the connection with the earth that we come from you know it's just so uh it's deep i know that's a lot to say but it it, it reminded it's, me of that your fascination with this kind of grew from that yeah it's a, well and it, it's uh, we all have those moments and and i talk about this with other archaeologists you know when you're outside and you're on a site and you just all of a sudden have this moment where you think Big time. wow and it's quiet and and whether you're hunting or, or working you're just but you're outside and you're just thinking about thing you know it just it's a it's it's a therapeutic yes. and and it just kind of brings things into perspective. Probably the best, one of my favorite moments I've ever had on a site. People will say, what's the best discovery? What's your favorite thing you've ever dug? There you go. And for me, one of the things that was really special was I was at a mound site right outside of Tunica. And we had, someone was spraying, um, spraying weeds and they had taken a piece of equipment and kind of cut the toe of of a mound off and so I was out there with an archaeologist and we were drawing the profile of the mound and we could see the the construction layers and there was a hearth right there where somebody had been cooking and off to another area was where they had been cleaning the hearth out and they would go and dump the ashes and I was drawing this little dump area and all of a sudden a tiny ear charred ear of corn fell out I mean it was just the other guy had gone somewhere and I was sitting there sketching it and it was so quiet it was at sunset all of a sudden this little tiny because their corn their maze was about the size of your little finger and it just plopped out of the wall of this mound and I was just all of a sudden I thought this is somebody's dinner from 1300 some woman was 1300 years ago and it just for a second I was just like you know this is I'm so lucky to have this moment and that's really it's not the greatest artifact ever but it's it was it was a special moment and we all have those when we're outside somewhere and you know just have a a moment where the world is bigger than us much bigger well well said and she she hit the nail on the head gratitude (laughs) gratitude heart of gratitude is what makes life go that's right doxy i'm glad you came here today because I, I i knew if you listened to this that you had a lot that you could relate to with it and jessica you've just been i i, I see us having you back uh be happy to I, yeah we've got to have so much with rufus. For yes absolutely <laughs> and we, we've got to have rufus when we need to do that and then um uh, that it's uh Prepare to just sit back and listen to him, though, because yeah. he could talk your ears off. <laughs> yeah, He's I good. believe that for sure. <laughs> I do. I, I feel like, is, is there anything else you wanted, a point you wanted to make, anything else you needed to say? If not. I don't think so. I think we've covered it all. Well, what I wanted to make sure, you know, I was a little nervous coming into this because I, I wanted to make sure we treated this subject matter with respect. Oof. And because uh, there, there's, I mean, it affects a lot of people. And I wanted our guys that listen to us to understand what might be on their property and for them to treat it with respect, but to also to watch out 
and not turn a blind eye and somebody steal and ravage and take from them what's been left. Because if you don't realize what's going on, or if somebody can do that to you, what it's happened in a number of places. Mm-hmm. So we're just kind of trying to shine a little light on it this is, subject. Matter. It's important to remember that there, you know, the people who whose homeland many of us are looking after now, their descendants are still here. And it is still sacred to them, and they're counting on us to to look after it and take care of it. and And they visit often, and they're they're wonderful people, and they they're happy to to teach us, and they like learning from us. and And so, yeah, it's important to remember that they're the descendants of the, those people are still here, and there are a lot of them, and they're they're great people, and these places are important to them, and yeah. it means a lot when they can come back and don't have to deal with things like looting and you know it's we've had to make phone calls to tribes and say you know well somebody dug up this Oof. burial and you know in recent times and that's that's hard that's embarrassing it's hard hard to say that sure to people sure it's, Dudley you got anything to add before we close out I don't think so I'm looking at Greg yeah well it's been beautiful and, and very spiritual and yeah. thank you so much for coming Happy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we enjoyed having you. Why don't you uh, say goodbye, Dudley? Goodbye, Dudley. <laughs> Get us out of here, <laughs> Rob Burgundy. That's right. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Gamekeeper Podcast. And be sure to tune in again. Subscribe to Gamekeeper Farming for Wildlife magazine. And don't miss the Mossy Oak Properties Fistful of Dirt podcast with my good buddy, Ronnie Cuz Strickland.